This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. podcast and let's do this a new report from the national academies of sciences engineering and medicine found that the va provides mental health services that are comparable or superior to similar private care and non-va government care however it also found that there is a substantial unmet need in getting veterans to request and utilize these healthcare services and here's uh, from this article A survey of the veterans developed and fielded by the committee that concluded the study found that approximately half of those may have a need for health care do not use the VA or non-VA services, indicating that a large proportion of veterans do not receive any treatment for conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse disorder, or depression. In addition, more than half of veterans who screened positive in the survey for having a mental health care need do not perceive a need for mental health services. Approximately 4 million U.S. service members took part in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In Afghanistan, Operation Enduring Freedom began on the 7th of October 2001 and ended December 31st, 2014. In Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom began 20th of March 2003 and um, on September 1st, 2010, operations there continued under the new name of Operation uh, New Dawn. To carry out its charge, the committee conducted site visits and sought input on the use of VA mental health services directly from the veterans of these wars, their families and caregivers, health care providers, and others at each of the Veterans Integrated Services Network across the U.S. Um, I just want to comment, I'm dumbfounded at how thorough this seems to be in terms of the, the wide range of wide range of people that they included in the study and their impacts there, you know, is that we need to know who's actually getting care and who isn't. And this really shows that not many, not as nearly as many of the guys that need help are getting it. Um, A lack of awareness about how to connect with the VA for mental health care is pervasive among uh, global war on terrorism veterans. It's got the other initials here. Among veterans who have a mental health care need and who have not sought VA mental health care services, their main reasons for not doing so are that they do not know how to apply for VA mental health benefits, unsure if they are eligible, or they are unaware that the VA offers those benefits. Other barriers to seek mental health care services, and this is very important, the committee found included lack of transportation options too and convenience of medical facility locations, concerns about taking time off work and potentially harming their careers, and fears that discrimination could lead to a loss of contact with or custody of their children or lead to a loss of medical or disability benefits. So it's really interesting to me that there's such a a huge unmet need and the variety of barriers to getting care does make a lot of sense. I'm glad that the people who ran the study were willing to consider and allow so many different opinions at a certain point, you know, it becomes kind of a, a, a pyramid of obstacles. Things begin to stack on top of each other, and you, you kind of like, you know, wonder, 
is it worth it to even continue, even try? Um, I used to live an hour and a half one way from my VA hospital, and I now live much, much closer. But when I did, you know, three hours round trip with all the pain that I have, it was a, a serious mental discussion. Is this appointment really fucking worth it? Um, I will say that all the care that I've received so far, you know, ha has been worth it. And I say that for both the mental health and the medical sides of the VA. I'm not their spokesman, but I do use their care, and I would not want to advocate for something that didn't help everyone's need for care. And like any government agency, they need to be held accountable. But they should also be applauded when they do something good. My last thought on this is if you're a veteran and you use this kind of care, please let us know how it's going for you. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how you talked about the fear of discrimination or stigma that sort of comes with mental health care in particular. I, I think a lot of guys who are suffering from behavioral health concerns, myself included, are uh, probably, they probably wish they got shot in the leg. You know, they probably wish they had something tangible and a scar to show that's physical that they could explain my leg hurts. You know, it's a lot harder, I think, uh, especially in a masculine environment like the military, which it, it still is. Right. It's, it's working on it, but there's still a level of masculinity involved in it and old notions of masculinity. I, I think a lot of people aren't particularly comfortable saying, yeah, you know what? I'm depressed. I suffer from depression. I'm treated for depression. I'll tell you that. I'm going to be treated at the VA probably for the rest of my life for that stuff. And uh, I didn't like that word at first either. It took me years of pain before I would even talk to somebody because it's like I didn't even believe in depression. Or I thought, you know, real men don't get depressed. Real men don't get anxiety. That's for, I don't know, that's, that's for somebody else, not me. Uh, it's a shame that more people aren't seeking the care if there's 4 million vets of Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't know. We probably can't even count the number of people that really ought to be seeking the care or, or need it. I would agree with you, Henry, that like our listeners should not be afraid of that. Uh, and if it helps everybody, someday I'll like list off the litany of like mental health concerns that have cascaded in my life. I've also been through a divorce, so I understand uh, child care and like how tough the courts can be and all that and there really needs to be protections for for divorce veterans i think when it comes to that sort of stuff as long as there's no threat to the child i mean it's really shouldn't be a factor yeah i uh i've been through some some similar circumstances myself and um it's terrifying it's terrifying the notion that something that's an emotional uh, you know a psychological condition could threaten your ability to continue being a dad both actively while you're doing it and indirectly through the court system or something and Danny I absolutely agree with you that protections for veterans in this in this circumstance especially going through the divorce courts is really important because their service could end up being held against them in a, in a multitude of ways even if they're a great person even if they are a good dad they get their treatment they do all that stuff it can still happen so um, so yeah, guys, please, uh, please get help if you can. And if you have a relative that you think needs help, they're a veteran, talk to them, you know, just try, try to, try to nudge them in the, in the right direction. They have to choose it, but, but maybe you can help. So, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, those invisible wounds are just as real as, as anything physical and, you know, don't, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. No, absolutely not. Well, as is always the case, it seems, you know, it's kind of cool how you and I work off of uh, our own interests and, and kind of bounce well off each other. Uh, I'm, of course, going to zoom out a little bit and go to uh, 
Well, a little segment I'm going to call People I Hate That Serve in the U.S. Congress. Um, this is our first episode, and I'm dedicating it to uh, Army veteran and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, uh, a royal piece of shit who uh, is probably the biggest hawk in the Republican Party right now. Uh, he has been called, uh, you know, the new neoconservative voice for the Republicans. And uh, that scares me because uh, neoconservative, uh, referring to sort of George W. Bush and Cheney and his ilk, that should be like an ex endangered species at this point. Like the fact that we still have neoconservatives or even neoliberals, which are not much different in the Senate uh, or in public life, is scary after the lessons we should have learned from Iraq and Afghanistan. But the article I'm talking about is from the National Interest. I've talked about that publication before. It's a libertarian uh, outlet. The author uh, of this book, this article called The Cotton Doctrine, More Wars, Less Security, is Christopher Preble. He, uh, he's a head of, I think, defense policy studies at Cato Institute, which is, a, is another libertarian think tank. I met him uh, at a veterans panel I was at in D.C. just two months ago. Chris Preble is a smart guy. What he talks about in this article is why Tom Cotton is dangerous. And, and I'm going to say he is, and also people like him are dangerous. And there's lots of them in the Senate, and, and half of them are in the Democratic Party. So this is not a partisan issue. Uh, Cotton has once been described as, quote, his party's most aggressive next generation advocate for military action overseas. That's just a scary phrase. The fact that we would have anyone uh, labeled the next generation advocate for war, it's just, ah, that's not what I would want people to say about me. But this guy's a climber. Um, he is an Army veteran. The, there's a danger in veterans because we do carry, rightfully or or in some cases not rightfully, we carry a certain degree of credibility with the public. You know, there's this common view of if you weren't there, you shouldn't talk about it. Well, I, I don't agree with that. But a lot of people do. So when Tom Cotton shows up and says, look, I'm not just a senator, I'm not just a, a hawk, but I was there, I'd been there, I'd done that, people are going to listen. So he his, his responsibility is even more to be, to be prudent, and the guy hasn't been. There's rumors swirling that... Uh, you know, if Mike Pompeo moves up to the State Department and takes over for Tillerson, that Cotton is next in line to become the CIA director. That frightens me. Um, you know, in February 20, 2017, Cotton got in front of the American Enterprise Institute, another think tank except a neoconservative think tank that was big time money and big time academic voices behind the invasion of Iraq in 2003. They should never be forgiven for that. But the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Cotton goes up there in February 2017 and basically attacks Obama for waging war, quote, too half-heartedly. Uh, I guess those thousands of terrorists and at least thousands of civilians that the Obama administration killed from the sky with robots uh, was too half-hearted for Mr. Cotton. Um, and, uh, and we just got to call this guy out. And so that's why I'm going to include this segment of uh, people I hate or uh, royal pieces of shit. I don't know. I don't know what the title is going to be. Uh, and, and I want to point out Cotton this time. This is a guy who, after 15 years of American failure in Iraq, has said of a war he served in that Iraq remains, quote, a necessary and just and noble war. We need to get these people out of office. The people who can look at the disaster of the Iraq invasion and say that that was a just and noble war uh, are doing us all a disservice. And when you're a veteran and you carry that credibility— it's highly, highly discouraging. So, you know, with that, I'm just going to say, um, let's, let's, uh, somehow we got to get some more progressives into Arkansas or something. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, it's, it's a long shot, but Tom Cotton's a dangerous guy. Keep an eye on him. 
because he's going places in the Republican Party. You can usually you can usually distinguish those uh, neoconservative people trying to push. You know the the we don't call it the Holy Muslim War or anything. You know it and and you know. Radical Islamic terrorism doesn't appear out of politicians' mouths as much, but that's the same thing. If it, you know, is, is it believes it's it's fair and honorable to continue a war. What does that say? And and I'm terrified of him being CIA director. We're already entering a new phase with this, where the budget, you know, they're allowed to do what they want and they're not accountable for it. To see that kind of that kind of power wielded by somebody like Cotton is is really terrifying. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting cat, and uh, these figures they rise up in the Republican Party. I, I I don't know, they're always the same. I mean, they're always like younger white males because like in the Republican Party, diversity is like just being young. Like that, you know, there aren't a whole lot of, of of black men, there aren't a whole lot of women, there aren't a whole lot of minorities, there aren't even a whole lot of young people. They're mostly old white dudes from like two particular areas of the country, the Pacific Northwest or the far northwest and then the south. But you know, so Tom Cotton's young. That makes him diverse in their party. And so those guys, like Paul Ryan, they climb. Um, keep an eye on him. The CIA is a is a scary uh perch to be on because like you said there is sort of a secret army now there's like a clandestine army that that is is not really watched very carefully by the intelligence committee or not as carefully as they ought to be in the oversight it just isn't there uh so yeah let's let's keep an eye on uh, on tom cotton and uh and, and let's fight back against against that idea that uh that war is a just and noble thing when it's waged for really questionable circumstances which we don't have to get into the intelligence and the failures and the lies that led to Iraq. Maybe someday we will. But at this point, the evidence is there. The evidence is there. 5,000 Americans died there. Oh, by the way, 200,000 brown people died there. And they matter just as much. Okay, so a lot of civilians were killed there. A lot of Iraqis of different ethno-sectarian backgrounds. So with that, I'll, I'll give Tom Cotton a rest, at least for this week. My wife and I are watching The Punisher right now. And... Recently, he's been having some memories of his time in the in the Marine Corps. Um, he ended up his team ended up getting tasked to a CIA handler. I point, you shoot. That was his exact words, and it really I, I'm I'm finding it pretty faithful to some of those harder harder line advocates. You know the the, the um, you know there's. Uh, guys in that he has a um, a support group that he goes to sometimes and you know the, there's a, that whole mesh of opinions different veterans different backgrounds and um but the point and shoot thing is eerily terrifying for today you know I just seeing that and i didn't even say that to my wife when we were watching the episode last night it's like this is this is happening right now so yeah and half the time the the point and shoot is all done by uh a drone operator from Las Vegas, you know, it's not you know. even necessarily a, a human being. But oh, by the way, those guys, we'll talk about this in probably some other future episode, those guys are suffering from PTSD too, you know, and a lot of people laugh at that, that these drone operators who are supposedly playing a video game, people laugh at them having PTSD, but I mean, we're getting off topic, but I, I just want to talk about this for a second. Those people sometimes watch their victims go through the normal patterns of life for hours or days and then have to see the uh, the aftermath of their broken bodies and the potential civilians. I mean, they're watching this stuff in like HD color footage. This right is in not, your face. 
yeah, this isn't the Gulf War of 91 where you have like the shaky black and white images that you and I grew up on. I mean, this stuff is real. And uh, I, I, I can't even imagine, quite frankly, I haven't had to deal with that. You know, I've, I've uh, pointed and shot and I have went and seen the bodies and it's, it's rough. But uh, I never really watched an entire family go through their normal pattern of life uh, before destroying them. And that, that I can't imagine what that must be like. So uh, Tom Cotton should not leave the CIA. God forbid. Not that I like Pompeo. But uh, better than Tom Cotton. Yeah. Last thing about Tom Cotton, he's like the inverse of of Danny. Like he's like the and I sound like Donald Trump calling myself in the third person. He's like the inverse of me, and 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 the and you right. Like he's a veteran who went over, did his thing, served honorably, and walked away from it liking war or wanting more war or thinking war is the answer. I, I don't know how he got to that intellectually. I don't understand how he came to that place. And and not everyone has to agree with me, but uh. Yeah, he's like, he's like the, my evil doppelganger or something. He scares me. He's like the dark side of myself that I don't let out, and uh, <laughs> that's why I shouldn't leave the CIA. Yeah, I, th- I think I th- don't think I ever had a an officer quite like him, but uh, that would be pretty terrifying. I, I can't imagine. All right, guys, uh, moving along here. I have a really interesting and pretty morbid story to tell you about now, but I think it's really important. Um, a few years ago, there was a, um, a group of army soldiers who actually formed their own paramilitary organization. And I don't want to go through the whole story. I, I, if you want to read it in, in real close detail, please Google it. Um, I, there's just a couple of different points. And the reason is, is that Danny and I, we deal in a lot of human gore, for lack of a better way to say it. And I don't think that... I don't think that it helps the memories of the victims of going over that over and over again. So, however, the story here I think is really important. That the the army has agreed to pay 4 million to settle a lawsuit by the families of a Marysville, Washington man and his girlfriend who were killed in 2011 by a group of renegade soldiers led by another Washington man intent on overthrowing the government and starting a race war. The unusual settlement reached after months of mediation, note that, not court, mediation, includes $1.7 million for the family of Michael Rourke, a former Marysville soldier who became entangled with the group of extremists while stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Rourke was killed by the group of soldiers, along with his 17-year-old girlfriend, Tiffany York, because the extremist soldiers worried they couldn't trust him. Now, I chose this story for a couple reasons. One, I, I see it as an absolute die-in-the-wool example of young soldiers being enticed into something of this extreme nature and actually following through. It's not just, we don't just find people when they're in the beginning stages of things. Sometimes they're in the end stages of things. Um, and the ringleader actually used the life insurance money from murdering his wife to finance the organization. Now, the second reason that I wanted to bring this up was the response of the Army and the federal judiciary. In one of two cases, the family had already moved on to the appeal process from an earlier court loss, but then was invited along with the second family who still had yet to see their day in court to a settlement conference. Um, Back to the article, the settlement is striking because the Army had already succeeded in having the claims filed by Rourke's parents um, dismissed in 2016, and the judge overseeing it said she had no choice but to comply with a doctrine that prevents the military from being sued um, due to injuries arising from military service, which is what we've always known, always been told. 
right? Um, however, in the York case to trial, the judge said that the jury in that case would be told that the Army and the FBI knew that the, um, I, I can't pronounce his name, Agui, A-G-U-I, G-U-I, that he posed a substantial risk to the public at least two months before the two victims were killed, but did nothing. His is the first case I've ever heard of where a federal court actually found the army liable for the actions of some of its soldiers. Mm-hmm. Now, folks, we covered uh, we covered white supremacy back in uh, 5.5. Um, Want to remind you, you know, that extremism appears in all different sorts of ways, um, and it's really important to for active service members to watch out for shit like this. Um, As I mentioned before, didn't want to go into great detail about the specific actions as it's been written about very extensively, and I have no desire to to elevate their actions. Um, I'm really, really happy, though, that the families of the victims received some compensation, albeit never enough to replace their loved ones, but something. And and we cannot underemphasize here how significant it is that a court found the Army and the FBI liable in this case. Yeah, it's a, you know, that's that's a tough situation. I'm really glad they they got a settlement. It's obviously very difficult to sue the government if not impossible. Um, it, it's kind of extraordinary that the court actually did find the military liable. I mean, I think oftentimes they sort of get off, you know, off the hook. It makes you wonder if it's a dangerous precedent, don't be wrong. Like to play the devil's advocate, I mean, if the army can be held liable for the actions of its extremist soldiers or its soldiers who come back damaged and do something awful, you know, I think the army's point would be, oh, well, that's a dangerous precedent that we're going to be held liable for all kinds of crimes. At the same time, I'm sympathetic to the family. I'm glad they got, uh, they got a settlement. We did talk about white supremacy and there is a link between, you know, veterans and, uh, white supremacy. It doesn't mean that most veterans are white supremacists, not at all, but, there are uh, there have been a number of extremist sort of incidents involving soldiers, and then there's also just been some guys who broke down. You know, uh, there was a case, I can't remember what state it was in. I read it in Time Magazine of all places about a a vet who sort of barricaded himself in his house and ended up getting to like a shootout with the police. And I mean, the guy was like a lethal dude. You know, he had he knew what to do. I mean, he 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 was firing mostly at the cops' legs and wounding a, a bunch of cops. But this stuff happens, and. Uh, and it's awful, and you do have to keep your eye out for it. Probably a lot of those people's friends would say, wow, I thought he was a normal guy. You know, I thought he was okay. I mean, the, the, these guys don't always present themselves as monsters from the start, and so it's it's a tough thing to, uh, you know, to, to keep an eye on these people. we got to do it. We Absolutely. Do it. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to talk about Iran real quick. I've uh, written a lot about Iran. Uh, I wrote an article that you can Google called uh, Iran Hysteria. I wrote that for Tom Dispatch, ended up in the nation. This was last year sometime. But uh, a couple weeks back, you know, or or a few weeks back at this point, there were some significant protests in Iran. And uh, President Trump kind of jumped in and said, you know, we support the protesters. And that's interesting because I'm not certain that President Trump actually could tell you three differences between Iraq and Iran, but uh, but he has an opinion, and I'm sure Stephen Miller and whoever else is pulling the strings over there have an opinion. Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis is a well-known Iran hawk. Uh, insider reports have said that one of the reasons he was like kind of retired as the CENTCOM commander is because he was— 
being slightly insubordinate towards the Obama administration, and, and he was against the JCPOA nuclear deal, and he wanted to take aggressive actions towards Iran. So it's not surprising that President Trump would get involved. But I read this really great article also in the national interest. I'll try to keep my sources a little more diverse in the future, but by this guy named Paul Pilar, uh, P-I-L-L-A-R. Worth reading this guy. Google him. Former CIA guy. I think he did like 27 years in the CIA. And he's like, he's like Henry and I, uh, except he was in the CIA and not the military. He's a little bit of a dissenter. He asks tough questions. He's a critical thinker. And he uses his experience to provide a framework for how to think critically about things. He doesn't tell you he's right because he was in CIA, but he writes great articles. He, he says, before we jump in and take a stand on the Iranian protests of these common Iranian citizens, we should follow certain guidelines, he says. And he says, because the problem is like when American presidents or American policymakers make pronouncements of who they support, uh, it, it usually has more to do with the politics in our country than it does with what's really going on on the ground. In other words, President Trump will say, I support the protesters in Iran because he hates Iran, hates the leaders of Iran, and he wants to show how he's a tough guy on foreign policy. But does he understand what these protests are about? Probably not. To go by his generally unsophisticated analyses, uh, you know, it's clear he doesn't. But the first guideline that Paul Pilar says we should follow is to apply a large dose of agnosticism to what's going to happen in the future. All he means by that is, look, we don't know what's going to happen in these protests. You got to be careful who you support because, like, look at the Arab Spring. You know, some of the groups that came to power turned out to be pretty nefarious characters that we might not want to be behind. You know, and 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 it's hard to say what's going to happen. Like in Egypt, the government fell quicker than anyone expected. Then the Muslim Brotherhood took over, and then then they were quickly thrown out of power by the the generals. So you know, you don't know. So he says, "Hey, be agnostic. Wait and see." Another thing he said is, uh, you know. Don't pretend to know what's in the minds of the protesters and don't pretend to know exactly what's going on in their world that's leading them to protest. And don't assume that throwing American support behind it is going to somehow strengthen their hand. It may have the opposite approach. Here's the thing to understand about the Iran protests. These are not the green movement liberal protests of 2009. Okay, there's been a lot of criticism of Obama. He should have come out earlier. He should have supported them more. And it failed, okay? That was a fairly liberal movement. There's a lot of liberals in Iran, guys. Did you know that Iran is more democratic than most countries in the Middle East? Did you know that Iran is more democratic than most countries that we support in the Middle East? Look, it's an imperfect theocracy, and it has its issues, and I wouldn't want to live there. But uh, young people in Iran, who are the majority of the population, are more liberal than most populations in uh, the rest of the Arab or Middle Eastern world. They're, of course, Persians. But this protest wasn't really all that liberal. It was more about economics. In fact, P Pilar says it's more similar to like the Rust Belt voters who supported Trump. These are like disenfranchised, lower and middle class, just working class folks who were upset with the economics. Iran's government has not been providing the social services that they come to expect. The welfare state is weakened there and, uh, and they're really frustrated. So try to understand what they're really mad about before you throw American support behind them. Because the guys that are in the streets protesting the government might not be pro-American, all right? This might, not every single uprising is for our values. Like not everyone, I know this is hard for Americans to hear, but not everyone in the world wants to be like America. Not everyone in the world who's upset about something says, man, if we could just get our government to be more like Washington DC, that'd be great. Hey, especially these days, not everybody's looking to America as a model, all right? Yeah, cool. And I might not be either. So, 
you know, we got to pay attention to these things when we throw American sport behind it. You know, one of the really great quotes uh, from Pilar's article was this. The chief inconsistency is that those who have been most in favor of imposing uh, rather, you know, imposing more sanctions on Iran, like the Trump team, like Mattis, are also the people today who are most supporting the protesters. But guys, the protesters are upset because the sanctions on Iran are making the economy worse and making their lives worse. So you can't say out of one side of your mouth, hey, go, good job, protesters. Here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to reward you. We're going to put more sanctions on your regime uh, and affect you economically even more. It's, it's ludicrous. It just shows how little we understand about the Iranian people. Uh, one last point on this that he makes is, you can sometimes hurt the protesters by making it seem like they're lackeys of the United States. In other words, if you say, go protesters, great job going out into the streets of Tehran and going out in the streets of Tabriz and these other cities and protesting the government, America stands with you. Guess what the government tends to do? They tend to say, you see, we told you that if you, anyone who protests against our regime is really just an American lackey, an American stooge, members of the CIA or paid off by the CIA. And you know what? The American government has overthrown an Iranian government before in 1953 with the CIA. So even though we're not doing it now, I think we're not doing it now, it, it plays well there. Some of the protesters would probably rather America say nothing because it actually hurts their argument if they're perceived as being too pro-American because guess what? America ain't that popular on the Arab or the Persian street, okay? Uh, the quote he said is, is, Trump coming out in favor of these protesters is much more likely to hazard and taint the Iranian opposition with the stain of foreign involvement. Uh, I would go back to his main point, which is this. Be careful what you wish for, okay? Because the people who are protesting may not have your values in mind and remain agnostic and wait and see. America does not need to take a stand on every single issue, does not need to get involved in every single situation. My guess is if Iran ever overthrows its theocracy, it's going to be Iranians who do it. It's going to be their motivation. It's going to be their revolution. It's going to be their decision to make. I don't think that Uncle Sam is going to turn Iran into a liberal democracy in our image. If it happens, it's got to be an Iranian choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Iran has been the, <clears throat> it's been the boogeyman for as long as I can remember. You know, my, um... The length of my entire service, I remember people one time selling t-shirts that uh, the little, it's like the little ticker sign, and it's spelled out, you know, in four little ticker symbols, Iraq, but the Q is slowly changing to an N, and yeah, that was back in 2004. I'm, I'm amazed that we haven't actually had a conflict with them yet, in some direct way. I really am, just based on the nature of our, of our defense. Yeah, they're like the boogeyman that keeps on giving for the military-industrial complex that we're going to talk about later. I mean, they really are. Iran is this interesting country. Someday we'll do a whole show on them. But, like, we totally misunderstand what they're about. Yeah, they do some things in the world. They support some groups in the world that are a little unsavory. So do we. The reality is Iran is a better place to be like a minority, like a Christian or a Jew even. Do you know they have Jews in Iran? 
Yeah, they have Jews in Iran and they don't get burned in the streets and they don't get their heads cut off. They're allowed to freely practice their religion. Again, I'm not saying the Iranian theocracy is not problematic. I'm not saying I want to go live in Tehran. I'm saying maybe they're not the boogeyman we've made them out to be. Maybe there are other bad players in the Middle East that we sell arms to. And I think you're going to talk about that soon. So, yes. <laughs> look, we just got to be fair. Let's just be fair. Let's, like, get the facts down before we turn someone else into, you know, this monster that we need to fight. You know, I remember you said 2004. It's interesting you should say that. Right after we toppled Saddam Hussein in 2003 and early 2004, when it looked like it was going pretty well, or at least to some people it did, there was this phrase – that got thrown around in a report. I don't know if it was the New York Times or the Post, but someone was doing like one of these insider accounts, like the whole Michael Wolff Fire and Fury book on Trump. But they were doing it on the Bush administration. And uh, an, an unnamed source high in the administration said after the Iraq invasion, hey, we're not done. We're not done with, with like reshaping the Middle East. And what he said was, and this quote has always stayed with me, he said, you know, everyone talks about going to Baghdad. Everybody talks about that now. Real men want to go to Tehran. In other words, like the real hawks in the administration are ready to send the tanks uh, into the Iranian mountains. Hey, uh, one more quick thing. If war with North Korea would be a disaster, so would war with Iran. They may not have nukes yet, but they have a lot of nationalist people, population almost double Iraq, way more mountains, way more natural obstacles. And they are highly, highly proud people who, if Iraq or Afghanistan is any... Uh, indicator would definitely definitely run it probably a forever insurgency against us so let's like kind of skip that one let's skip the whole part of the story where we invade iran and, and like learn our lesson for the seventh time except not learn it hell yes thank you for joining us today please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com you can also find us on twitter at fortress on a hill or on facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.